The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along, September 23rd, 2022. Fall nips the air in the northern hemisphere, but south of the equator, it's, what is it down there, early summer, late winter? Let me work this out. It's uh, 3 p.m. on Wall Street, where the Dow has plummeted into bear territory. Russian, Russian bear territory. 4 p.m. in the Canadian Maritimes, half past four in Newfoundland, 8 p.m. in London where the pound has nosedived into the Thames, 9pm in Oslo, where the Norwegian government has ended COVID vaccines for almost anyone under 65. 10pm in Moscow, where Vladimir Putin has cautioned the West that, quote, I am not bluffing when it comes to nuclear threats. Half past 11 in Tehran, because it always helps to have a half-hour time zone when the world is going to end at midnight. 1 a.m. in New Delhi, 3.45 a.m. in Cocklebiddy, and 7 a.m. in Dunedin, where Coroner Sue Johnson has ruled that Rory Nairn, a 26-year-old plumber, died of myocarditis brought on by his first shot of the Pfizer vaccine. He dropped dead in the bathroom. His girlfriend heard him fall, but he fell against the door, blocking it, and she was unable to push it open to get to him. 26, and dead of a medical intervention he did not need, because Rory Nan was told that In the words of Klaus Schwab, unless everyone is vaccinated, no one is safe. New Zealand, Denmark, Norway, slowly, 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 the narrative shifts. On this day, 900 years ago, September 23rd, 1122, Pope Calixtus II and the Holy Roman Emperor Henry V agreed to the Concordat of Worms, or the uh, diet... The Diet of Worms, as every schoolboy of my generation always called that particular German town. Um, The Concordat of Worms. God, I'm doing it again. (laughs) The Concordat of Worms uh, ended the so-called investiture controversy over the question of whether the state or the church had the right to appoint bishops. As part of the compromise, the emperor was permitted the right to invest the clerics with a scepter representing imperial authority over the lands within their diocese. 900 years ago today, the Pope and the Emperor met at the German town of Worms to thrash it all out, much as Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin meet to thrash out the Ukraine. Oh, no, wait, I'm hallucinating again. I passed through Worms six years ago en route to Heidelberg. It's about halfway between Frankfurt and Heidelberg. It's one of the three oldest cities in Germany, so as you might expect... 
It's uh, full of women in head coverings. About a decade ago, the synagogue got mysteriously firebombed by persons who wrote very bad German but were exercised about the Jews' treatment of the believers. Hmm. Uh, if there ever is a concordat of Worms again, it will be about entirely different things. Uh, but if you saw the Queen's committal ceremony at St George's Chapel, there was a faint echo of all that in the moment when the Dean of Windsor removed the orb and scepter from Her Majesty's coffin before her body was lowered into the crypt. I know, I know, you all want me to talk about the red wave coming in about five weeks' time. And uh, the Republican Party is pledging as part of its red wave. Uh, it's got some sort of pseudo contract with America. It's put put out, including they're gonna they're promising to start a select committee on China. Oh, that's fantastic, isn't it? Is there a select uh, a select committee on uh, Hitler and the Japanese Empire? Can't be bothered. Uh, I will tell you one American story that I think just sums it all up. Do you remember? It's a few years ago now. But it made, a, it made the papers, at least in Massachusetts and surrounding states, there was a judge, Shelley Richmond Joseph, in Newton, Massachusetts, which I only know because I happen to have a lawyer in that particular municipality. And Judge Shelley Richmond Joseph had an illegal immigrant from the Dominican Republic, criminal illegal immigrant, and the fellow from ICE heard about the court hearing and was waiting outside the courtroom to take the guy into custody after uh, the court hearing. So the judge arranged for the illegal immigrant criminal to be let out the back door. If you've ever been in a courtroom, you'll know that there is no back door. There's a door that leads to the judge's chambers, and then there's a door that leads to the holding cells. Take him down, as they say in the English courts. Um, and so there's no back door uh, unless the judge gives you permission to go back there to avoid the ice guy. So she was charged by uh, what was then the Trump Justice Department. It seems sad to have to put it that way. But she was charged with the whatever, what do they call perverting the course of justice here? Ob obstruction of justice. So she's been off the bench for four years, and the Justice Department, under its new proprietor, supposedly Joe Biden, but actually whoever's widening, waggling the dead husk of Joe Biden, uh, has now dropped all charges of obstruction of justice against this judge. She's been at home, sitting at home, not doing a day's work for four years, and has been receiving her salary of $207,000. So she has made eight hundred grand for doing nothing. For doing nothing, not a day's work. Eight hundred grand for doing nothing. And I mention her only because she's a particularly extreme example of the phenomenon whereby everything that happens screws you, screws your business if you're a hairdresser, if you're a restaurateur, if you're in almost any other kind of business, but in government, in government, even if you're just a crappy old district judge 
Uh, you can make eight hundred grand sitting at home for four years. I'm beginning to. I don't understand. I, I mentioned that I'm constrained from fomenting the overthrow of the United States government uh, because I entered into an agreement uh, when I was permitted to enter this country that I would not foment the overthrow of the United States government. But bloody hell, it's about time somebody started fomenting it. You're all being suckered. <laughs> They're living large. They're getting their 800 grand for sitting at home for four years. You weren't, you weren't able to go and run your hair salon. You weren't able to go and run your diner. Uh, did you get 800 grand for just sitting at home? I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to get this angry this early in the show. It's not uh, It's not that good. Let's get to your questions. John Fatchy says, Mark, it's been suggested that if Biden was smart, he would have continued Trump's policies and taken credit for them. Yeah, that's assuming uh, that you're you're taking you're making the quaint assumption there, John, that uh, the persons who govern us are interested in what is best for the persons of the jurisdiction they happen to govern. I don't think that's true anymore in America or elsewhere. Regardless of Biden's intelligence, says John, I believe his policies are reflected in the state of our union. Is King Charles smarter than Biden? Well, God, like that, that's ridiculous. Is, I had a dog whose, whose intelligence declined uh, somewhat rapidly in her later years. I love that dog, but there wasn't a lot of her brain left by the end. But that dog, you know, so she's one of those dogs who would wake up in the morning and spend the first 25 minutes circling, 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 trying to, reor- trying to orient herself. But that dog, at her most brain dead, wasn't as brain dead as uh, the guy who uh, purports to be leader of the free world. So obviously, King Charles, is King Charles smarter than Biden? Yes. As I said to Snadley the other day, Biden, the reason they gave Biden such a lousy seat at uh, the funeral was because he makes a much more convincing corpse than the Queen does. Uh, Is King Charles smarter than Biden? Yes. Is he bent on the destruction of Western civilization? Does he live for his legacy? I believe the sovereign is more influential Uh, than most Americans do. Is the head of state entirely exonerated from policy? This is a low standard, but I have more faith in Charles than Joe. Well, he's, uh, they're actually about the same age. That's what's so incredible, uh, apart from other things. And uh, and, uh, Charles is functioning so that when he's at Davos yakking it up with Klaus Schwab, he's capable of having a sustained conversation until late into the uh, evening. Uh, it's not true to it's talking about influence and all that. You know, formally, uh, the king is invested with executive authority in the United Kingdom, in Canada, in Australia, blah, blah, blah. And occasionally, uh, the monarch does actually wield it. For example, one reason two days before the Queen died, uh, that they uh, hustled Boris out and hustled uh, Liz Truss in is because when uh, there is no prime minister and no administration, then executive authority reverts 
uh, to the Queen for that period of whether it's an hour and a half or three and a half hours or a day and a half, that there is in fact no prime minister with a ministry. Uh, so, so the fact is, the uh, the king and and as we've talked about in his role as head of the Commonwealth, the king is not protected by any prime minister, as David Starkey put it to me. So, what's interesting, is, I believe, is that uh, the king is going to make that position far more political. Now, he believes in all the stupid globalist rubbish. Uh, and he also believes, I think, that he can make it work for him personally. Uh, so I, I don't know. I think he feel. I think he feels that this is his moment, and he's going to play his cards. I mean, he shouldn't have been at Davos. He shouldn't be yakking it up with Klaus Schwab. Uh, but nevertheless, he was, and he has slightly redefined the role of heir to the throne. Uh, to allow him to get away with it. Uh, Janice Cole says, Hi, Mark. If the pandemic emergency is over, do we have any idea how many of Biden's executive orders are no longer valid? How do they get stopped? Well, he said the pandemic was over. Everybody else from the White House then uh, said he misspoke. So immediately, uh, the broadcast networks and the newspapers were full of stories saying sources within the White House said that it's not so that the pandemic is over and that the president... So wait a minute. The named president, supposedly, the named chief of state of the United States has said something, but then unnamed sources explained to the media, that, oh, no, 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 no. That's, that's not how it works. He didn't really mean that. Who is running the United States? You know, we have all these uh, so-called conspiracy theories about uh, the uh, secret uh, fellas at Davos uh, holding the Spectre board meeting in the hollowed-out Alp who are secretly running the world. But it is admitted by our newspapers and our television networks that the head of government of the United States government, the chief of the executive branch, is not in fact in charge of the executive branch. So he can wander off message and say that COVID is over, and then somebody has to correct him and uh, and tell the newspapers and the television, that, oh, no, 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 COVID isn't over, pay no attention. Well, you know, you guys with your unnamed sources, why don't you tell, if you think you know who's running the United States government, why don't you tell us? But this isn't normal. To go back to what John Fatchy says, uh, if the king says something, the king says something. People, unnamed courtiers, don't think, oh, no, 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 I'm afraid the king misspoke. This is pathetic. This isn't Republican in the least. I don't want to start the don't wave your constitution at me stuff too early in the show. But how come uh, uh, the American people, a supposedly self-governing people, put up with the so supposed person who's responsible to the people saying something and then uh, the, the media telling you that unnamed sources have told you that's all bollocks? Why do you put up with this? Uh, Christopher Gelber says, Mark... I share in calling out the Dems' hypocrisy on Martha's Vineyard. This would be the 50 people who uh, were flown to Martha's Vineyard by the Florida governor, uh, DeSantis, and 
they were out of there in nothing flat. All the people, 50 people. Oh, no, we haven't got we can't we haven't got the infrastructure to cope with this. So they were removed instantly and uh, taken to some military base far away from Martha's Vineyard. And Christopher Gelber says, uh, Mark, I share in calling out the Dems hypocrisy on Martha's Vineyard, but not in the glee of it. It saddens me and I remain torn between wanting to ridicule their maddening hypocrisy versus wanting to find common ground with all the millions of decent Democrat supporters out there. The former is emotionally satisfying, but close to tribal and guaranteed to stop their ears from hearing the points we make and the reasons we have for them. The latter is necessarily a slow burn, which brings its own frustrations. I just wonder, what are your thoughts on the respective merits of these contrasting approaches? Yes, in the end, nothing is going to change until normal people, and by normal people, I don't, you know, I obviously don't mean uh, like uh, Chuck Schumer or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Nancy Pelosi or Nancy Pelosi's corrupt uh, drunk driving husband or any of these other people. That's, that's not who puts Democrats in power. It's your neighbors who put Democrats in power, and in some cases, your friends who put Democrats in power. And so the, argue, the purpose, and, and again, I'm not talking about those tedious, awful, third-rate uh, cable TV hacks like uh, uh, Don Lemon, uh, the guy who got humiliated by... Uh, uh, that British professor or whatever she was, when uh, he asked her a question about whether the royal family should pay reparations for slavery, and she actually explained to him who ended slavery in the modern world. And he suddenly realized, oh, my God, oh, no, I'm up against someone who knows facts. Uh, get her off the air, quick. I'm not talking about those guys. You know, it's, it's easy to think we're at war with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Paul Pelosi and Don Lemon and all these people. But no, it's, as Christopher's quite right, there's tens of millions of people out there who are quite ordinary people, uh, not terribly political, but they all vote Democrat for one reason or another. And uh, if you want to change things peacefully, you're going to have to figure out some line that actually resonates with them. And I've been thinking about this with respect to lockdown world and COVID vaccines, because I, I think a lot about that. And one of the problems with that, the COVID vaccines bring this into some kind of sharp perspective, because what you're going to have to do, what I'm going to have to do, uh, is try and persuade people to acknowledge that they've been suckered uh, and that they've been played for a rube, which is actually a terribly, a terribly difficult thing to do. I mean, and that's what you're trying to get. That's what you're trying to do on all these issues. On climate change, you're trying to, you're, you're, you're well, something with like the vaccines is a good example because you're trying to, which I, I think is, there's more and more evidence, I think, that. Uh, they have known for some time uh, that these things can kill you and they've still been pushing them. So then you have the you're in the situation where you have to admit that people you've trusted, people you've voted for, are rather relaxed about letting you die. 
that's the the extreme end of things. You would it would be quite a thing to get a person to acknowledge that that the guy he voted for is comfortable with letting you die. But then there's there's people sort of way to the side of that, which is that the people you vote for are quite happy about impoverishing you uh, through net zero and other climate change policies. They're quite happy to, uh, to, to see your communities ruined as, you know, long before anybody got to Martha's Vineyard, thousands and thousands of communities have been completely ruined uh, quite a long ways from the U.S. border. And it's about... Uh, I, I'm going to talk about this, the other side of our musical interlude, which is not unrelated to it. But I take your point, Christopher, that, you know, the humiliation is why I don't talk about Piers Morgan, for example, on GB News. We're kicking his flabby butt in the ratings and, it, and making um, Rupert Murdoch look like a complete ass for lavishing tens of millions of pounds on him. But the point isn't, and that that's fine. If you thought if you thought Piers Morgan was the enemy, that would be fine to just piss on Piers every night. But it isn't. If you want actually want to change uh, people's minds, ordinary people's minds, people who don't want a lot of drama in their lives, uh, it's it's a slow and gradual thing, and we don't really have time for slow and gradual because. The crisis is urgent. Nothing works. The entire Western world is seizing up. But people uh, who are, are, there are hundreds of millions of people across North America and Europe and Australia and New Zealand who don't think like that. And getting normal persons to change their view on this is is the uh, is the real challenge. Kelton adds to what Christopher Gelber was saying by saying, "Hello, Mark. What?" Is, and again, I understand. You know, uh, Kate McMillan, who runs Small Dead Animals in Saskatchewan, which is the, about the last website of the golden age of the Canadian blogosphere, and I read what Kate has to say uh, every morning. You know, she's uh, she's terrific. Um, and Kate rightly or rightly says that mischief is important because it's important for morale. It's important to have a good time. But it's also important, I think, to understand uh, that getting in the face of upscale ninnies who are neighbors of the Obamas at Martha's Vineyard is necessarily a uh, sideshow. And it's important to understand. It's good to trip up and discombobulate uh, Ocasio-Cortez and Don Lemon and whoever. But it's, it, you know, in the end, hundreds of millions of normal people have to start thinking differently about the challenges that face us. Kelton says, hello, Mark. What is a governor like Greg Abbott hoping to accomplish by sending illegal immigrants to liberal enclaves? Uh, it is amusing to see the hypocrisy of the Democrats on display 
But we've been there, done that, and look where we are. I also feel like this glosses over the people who have been truly hurt by lawlessness at the southern border. Forget the reaction of Martha's Vineyard over the presence of 50 illegal immigrants. And instead, think about Kate Steinle, who was killed in San Francisco. Think about the lives that have been ruined by drugs being smuggled across the border. How about 53 migrants that died in a semi-truck trailer earlier this year, and so on. I appreciate the creativity of Abbott and the like, but to me this approach isn't even entering into an argument, let alone trying to win one. Your thoughts? Well, you just heard what I said in response to Christopher. What is amazing to me is that illegal immigrants murder a lot of people. Uh, They drive without licenses and they drive drunk and uh, they run over a lot of people. Uh, They have gangs like MS-13, which have penetrated deeper and deeper into the American heartland, uh, so that uh, they're now in all over Massachusetts, for example, which is a long way from the southern border. Uh, Vermont, Burlington, Vermont has gone to hell. This was a town that 25 years ago, David Brooks at the New York Times hailed as the future. It was the quintessential latte town. He thought it was post-politics. He thought politics had devolved to arguments over bike paths uh, and other pseudo-environmental fripperies. And you just discuss them in a civilized manner over your decaf macchiato from the uh, organic coffee store, and that eventually th- this was the future for American politics. I don't know whether any guy has ever been more wrong, but it, but uh, but in the course of this, he hailed Burlington, Vermont, as the quintessential latte town. It's a crap hole now. It's Stab City. It's uh, it's it's an, a violent, depressing place uh, where it's not safe to as I think what what night was this? It was Tuesday or Wednesday night. Burlington from I mean I'm talking about because a long time ago, long long time ago, uh, used to date a uh, this is a very long time ago. Used to date a young lady in Burlington, Vermont. And uh, when I'd uh, d- drive to Burlington, uh, we'd go to go for a night on the tiles. Uh, and we'd uh, parked downtown. I never once thought about locking my car. It wasn't that kind of a town. It, was, uh, it wasn't that long ago, but it was a perfectly peaceable town, and now it's a dump. It's been so enriched by Democrat policies, it has a super liberal town council, that the place is going to hell. And you would think then, if you were Vermonters, you, you were the kind of Ben and Jerrified Vermonter, the Bernie Sanders Vermonter. Bernie used to be mayor of Burlington. You would have a think. You would be saying, wait a minute, could the fact that I can't go out at night now, uh, and I'm stuck here because my house is going to decline in value because it's no longer a safe town that people want to go to, uh, this is all sort of in the COVID era. Do, 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 would this be a good time to reconsider my super uber mega liberal uh, policies of, about the vibrancy of diversity and all the other bollocks? Would it be t- a good time now for me to start rethinking? Oh, no, I don't think I'll. I'll carry on voting for the same party whose policies have destroyed everything about my town. That's unfortunately... The situation we're in. And if you look at, you know, the fentanyl, if you look at Kate Steinle and all the 
all the non-famous Kate Steinleys. And then if you look at the parents of girls murdered by illegal immigrants who say, oh, well, the one thing she would have wanted me to commit to in her memory is her support for immigrants and for diversity. Hate has no home here, uh, except when it comes to the stabbing of our children and the ruination of our children through drugs uh, imported by drug cartels working in cooperation with the government of the United States. You know, and as I pointed out in a column, I, I get really I get really sick of this because, as I said, I, I've had two guests in uh, recent days who have said they have no intention of ever setting foot in the United States ever again because when they uh, land, they are made to feel like criminals by being fingerprinted, whereas all the criminals actually have the run of the whole bloody country. And it's not just actually when we talk about converting tens of millions of Democrats, actually an awful lot of Republicans, you know, don't think that's uh, any big deal either. So things are, you know, the conversation, not the uh, not the eye-catching uh, gimmicks like the Martha's Vineyard thing, but the normal conversation between normal people. Because this isn't normal. It's not normal at any point in human history to say, oh, you Trojans, you needn't to... Uh, uh, you, let's not bother the Trojan horse thing. That's not necessary anymore. No need to build a big wooden horse because we're just going to have the border open anyway. The wooden horse, that's a great idea, but it's its superfluous now uh, because we uh, have the borders are completely open. It's weird. It's all uh, very weird, all this. And the public conversation is nowhere near where it ought to be on this. And that's, uh, at some point, the, the way normal people think. So that in the end, it would be possible to have a conversation uh, on uh, uh, with your neighbors about immigration that isn't about uh, what a laugh it is that these Martha's Vineyard people are total hypocrites, but that what a, what what an appalling disgrace and shame it is uh, that that the drug gangs poisoning American youth. Uh, are basically coming into the country illegally. It's uh, time for our musical interlude, I think, because a lot of this stuff is very dark, but this is not unconnected to the situation we're in and to the point that Christopher and Kelton have been making. Uh, John Hartman died yesterday. He was the drummer for the Doobie Brothers and played on all their hits. And in fact, he was a guest on my radio show many years ago. So this one I have a sentimental spot for because it takes me back to my earliest days as a disc jockey. And all I'll say about it uh, now is that the chorus has a great insight into our present woes. If you listen attentively to it. Uh, and for once, I'm not going to talk over the intro uh, so you can appreciate Mr. Hartman's contribution to this great hit. Two, one, two, three...
She musters a smile for his nostalgia The Doobie Brothers and a monster hit from 1979. A very happy time of my life in Montreal. Rest in peace. The Doobies drummer for half a century, John Hartman. Did you catch that chorus? A great insight into our terrible times and why supposedly free, self-governing peoples fail to grasp the scale of the crisis. What a fool believes he sees. No wise man has the power to reason away. What seems to be is always better than nothing, than nothing at all. What seems to be is always better than nothing. And no wise man has the power to reason that away, which is the limitations, which is why I always say, you know, uh, politics is downstream of 
culture. People believe in stories, whether those stories are told through uh, films or plays or pop songs or movies. Uh, they, they, we are a storytelling culture and we believe in stories. And you can't simply argue that away by looking at the I'm looking at a map right now. Uh, about uh, fertilizer closures, closures of fertilizer producers, a map of it all over Europe. Uh, and that's all very reasoned, but no wise man has the power to reason away what seems to be. And there is a lot of truth in that. And uh, as an example of it, oh, I see we have a uh, question from uh, Alyssa Angel, who says, should we place bets on whether the Dow Jones drops below 29,000 during the show? We should have the answer on or about uh, 4 p.m. North American Eastern time. Isn't the, is the Dow closed now? Is, uh, uh, when does the bell when does the bell go? Anyway, it's, a, it's about to dip below 29.5. So it's down... It rallied. It basically fell about 700 points in the course of the day, and it's rallied a little, but it's down 600 from where it was. Kate Smythe from Down Under says, Mark, following your recent overseas travels and return to the U.S., which country, including state, province, and or region, do you sense is the best bet for the next five years, all things considered, including the possibility of another, quote, pandemic or similar, quote, global emergency? I don't have I don't have a lot of confidence in any of these things. What was funny to me about this, Kate, is that a lot of people when they used to talk about how America was going to hell. And indeed, wealthy Americans all bought land in New Zealand because they assume that New Zealand is far away. And so that's like a good place to go when the powder keg goes up. But in fact, the views on all that have been completely revised during the pandemic because New Zealand had some of the most insane policies on earth. I am heartened by the behavior of generally you know there's a problem in america the problem in america is that government is corrupt and their enforcers are armed so for example they're hiring the treasury is hiring 87,000 armed IRS agents. So uh, the IRS is going to have more firepower than the average European Union army. So if they don't like you, they can kill you. What was uh, interesting to me, just uh, uh, one of our commenters pointed it out after last week's show, is the decision to arrest uh and and sees the telephone of the my pillow guy Mike Lindell in the drive-through lane at Hardy's a fast food restaurant when they'd been tracking him on his return from an out of state hunting trip why would you choose to i i mentioned the obvious thing why would you choose to stage a raid on a guy in the drive-through lane of a fast food restaurant because if it all goes sideways you know, you're going to have dead grannies and dead children getting killed in the crossfire. But that was worth it to them because 
if you're returning from a hunting trip, as our commenter pointed out, what do you have in your vehicle? You have guns. And so if they ask uh, the guy, if they say, we've got a warrant for your cell phone, and he reaches over to the seat where the cell phone is, and that happens to be in the same general direction as the gun, then they can say, oh, well, he was reaching for his gun, so we had to shoot him. You know, that's, that's the way I look at it with America. It's corrupt, uh, but more than that, it's, it's lethally corrupt in that the bureaucracy is armed and can kill you. And that's always something that you have to bear in mind in any interaction with American officialdom. I said this to Snerdley the other day. Now, you know, there's a lot of corruption in Western Europe, particularly in the Mediterranean countries. They've always had a higher tolerance for corruption than uh, Anglophone democracies, His Majesty's Dominions, or Scandinavia. But at the same time, as we've just been talking about, His Majesty's Dominions have performed fairly terribly during the COVID era. And actually, the Scandinavian countries haven't. Sweden, we know, because they decided not to go lockdown. Denmark came along and said uh, the other day, oh, no, no, we're not going to bother jabbing anybody under 50 anymore. Nobody under 50 uh, needed, needed the vaccine, unless you had a highly... Uh, severe underlying condition that might conceivably have made the risk worthwhile. But otherwise, the cost-benefit analysis for most people under 50 is, you know, would, would lead you to say, no, I'm not going near this thing. Even if the claims made for it are true, I don't need it. Uh, then then we had, so Denmark said, oh, no, we're not giving it to anybody under 50. Norway then said, no, no, we really, if you're not under 65, we're not going to give it. So they've actually behaved. Now, they're high tax social democracies. Uh, they're not to everybody's tastes. And in Sweden, you've got bombings because of the insanity of their immigration policy. In Denmark, it's not that far behind. Then you have Eastern Europe, Central and Eastern Europe, the post-Warsaw Pact states, which are not to everybody's taste. Uh, but on the other hand, they I would say of all the places, I of all the cities that yeah, I would I would say the first place, the first time since the COVID era, era that I felt totally normal was when I was in Budapest. You know, and it's a, it's a really tough thing to say how you know how did this happen? That if you want to flee, if you want to hightail it out of here, if we're really in the last train from Berlin moment, uh, the the thing to do is not head west. But head east, that is all very strange. You know, and again, it's because people are putting, because uh, a, uh, a, what a fool believes he sees, and no wise man has the power to reason away. If you attempt to reason with people, as we've been talking about, on mass immigration that no civilized country needs, and certainly no developed nation can admit 
Uh, I've talked about numeracy before because it's the, it's the base it's the base thing. Trump says, "Why don't we get anyone from Norway? Why do we just get people from these bipolar countries?" Because actually, if you're in Norway and you've just got five million Norwegians for the most part, uh, you know you're better off sticking with them than being the entire nation merges, moves to America, and it, the five million Norwegians are uh, outnumbered by the uh, unskilled third world population admitted by Joe Biden since he took office. Uh, There's nothing for a Norwegian in getting mixed up with that. Um, But you can't. The problem is that that uh, that is a rational and reasoned argument but emotionally speaking, uh, uh, people shy away from it because it, they think it makes them sound racist. Oh, yes, no, no. I, I don't want Norwegians. Uh, yes, no, no. All these Venezuelans who show up at Martha's Vineyard, they're, they're the chaps for me. Doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't work like that. And people are going to have to. And, and this is only going to get worse because if, if I think of this Across the last 30 years, during which apparently the entire population of illegals has remained constant at this mythical 12 million figure that they give out in America. Uh, But it's going to get the conversation. The needle hasn't really shifted on this uh, in in this century. And with every five, ten years, the arithmetic of it gets worse and worse. If you go, and I get, I'm not talking about crazy people with websites. I'm talking about the UN Population Division. If you take into account the, popu- the global population growth, almost all of which is going to be in sub-Saharan Africa and the, Mid- and the Middle East and the Muslim world, in other words, in countries that can't support their existing populations, uh, they're all going to be heading north. They're going to be, some of them will make their way as they already are to the, because everybody in the world knows that the southern border of the United States is open so that if you can get to Latin America, all you've got to do is make it up to the Rio Grande and you're in. And uh, for Europe, it's going to be even worse. But the fact of the matter is these numbers the population differential between the Western world and the developing world, that gap widens and widens and widens every five years, every 10 years, that you do nothing about it. So persuading people to think like those guys on Martha's Vineyard did, saying, oh, no, 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 Yes, we uh, haters no home here, uh, but you guys have no home here either. Uh, so haters no home here, and you guys are, are, are going to be out of here in nothing flat. If we could apply that at the Rio Grande, if you could apply that on Europe's southern borders, it would actually be yeah, it would actually be a great thing. But persuading people to think in their own rational interest is a huge problem because what a fool believes he sees. And no wise man has the power to reason away what seems to be. Uh, And that is a terrible, 
terrible situation to be in. James says, what is the thing you miss the most about the 2019 world? Oh, the Mark Stein Christmas show, the Mark Stein cruise. I'm not anybody, you know, so if if there's an economic collapse in the Mark Stein sector, it's not a big deal to anyone uh, except for me and my colleagues. But I miss the life I had then. I miss uh, the, the the 2019 Mark Stein cruise was a fabulous success. It wasn't any big deal. We just started in Vancouver and uh, went up the Alaskan coast. But it's the sort of thing that is virtually impossible to do now. It would have been, I believe the cruise ship lines have just dropped recently there. Or I think, no, I think actually it was the United States government that made vaccines on cruise ships departing and arriving at American ports mandatory. So what that meant is that you were getting, you know, a lot of those, as the government of Norway has concluded, people under 65 who were getting shots they didn't need and exposed them to terrible ongoing harms. And so, the, you know, you can't have a cruise in those conditions. Uh, and, it's, and it'd be interesting to see now whether there's going to be any pushback on that. Same thing during the Christmas show. You know, we had performers from, you know, not a great... We don't really believe in celebrating that much diversity. But at the Mark Stein Christmas show, we had uh, people from uh, Canada, we had people from Ireland, Wales, England, the United States, whatever. And uh, just the, the, what, the, what you would have to do to align all that and have them able to be in the room at the same time is just so difficult. I miss everything about 2019. I really just hate the, you know, the, the UK papers are back with the rubbish about how there's oh there's been a, an uptick in uh, in in COVID uh, cases now, and that we I think people got carried away mourning the Queen, so we had all these super spreader events like the royal funeral, and now everyone we got all these people testing positive for COVID again, and so we might have to lock down all over again, and we might need vaccine passports over again, and all the ridiculous uh, freaks in the British media who peddle this crap, and I couldn't I couldn't I'd rather Take my, I don't want to live like this. It's not normal to live like this. It isn't normal. Oh, yeah, that tatty old mask you wore for two years. Get the tatty old mask out and start breathing in the plastics on the tatty old mask hanging off your nose because uh, we all got to go back to pretending this is the only thing that matters in the world. Screw it. Timothy McDonald says, Mark, clearly you have conducted a number of compelling interviews with a number of people that have produced some of our culture's greatest popular music. You remarked once that you didn't have a great deal of training in music. I don't know about that phrase, training in music. <laughs> uh, it's a bit like uh, when people talk about experimenting with LSD. It makes it sound like a, a lot more scientific than it is. Uh, during your interviews, says Timothy, which interviewee taught you the most about music theory and composition, and what did you learn? Well... Uh, I don't think you learn a lot about music theory uh, from from interviews. I think you sort of uh, you you work that out in other ways. I will say that you know I used to be a lot more cocksure. I think I've talked about this before. I did a thing uh, 
Well, I took some Ring Lardner short stories and adapted them. And Ring Lardner is most famous, I think, to Americans for his sports writing. But he he also wrote a lot of short stories about Broadway and Tin Pan Alley because he always wanted to be a songwriter and in the music biz. And we played various of his attempts on in, in various of our uh, formats over the years. But uh, as part of that then, there were these parody song lyrics he'd written uh, that he that were sort of parodies of bad Tin Pan Alley song forms. You know, there was a Mammy song and there was a sort of pseudo-continental song and things. And so for this adaptation I did for the BBC, uh, they were going to be set to music and they hired a, a rather distinguished uh, composer in the business. And uh, I realized when he sent me the things that he the, the the musical settings for these parody lyrics that there was a basic problem he was too good so for these very bad lyrics he'd written tunes that were too good for them and uh we had a little bit of back and forth and uh <laughs> uh with the producer and everything and it uh, he wound up withdrawing because he'd never been you know criticized for saying he'd overdelivered before <laughs> He couldn't quite get the idea that he'd written music that was too good. So anyway, at that point, we're in huge trouble because we've got the band coming in uh, and the performers coming in. And so they say to me, uh, they, the producer says to me, well, you do it. So I teach myself. Uh, I basically taught myself. I learned an awful lot just in that crisis 48 hours because you learn a lot about how how songs are constructed, how you take a phrase, how you vary a phrase to take it up or take it down. And But I just had to do it on bad lyrics. So I had to just write a bad tune that went up and down in predictable ways and 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 had a middle eight. I had some fun by constructing a middle eight that didn't really fit the first eight bars and things. So you learn, I think uh, you learn a lot of uh, things you learn from having to do them. Now, obviously then, you know, when you're talking to a great orchestrator uh, and you're talking about Jerome Kern and you're talking to about the enharmonic changes as uh, the enharmonic change as he comes out of the middle section of all the things you are and back into the main strain, that's a, that's a completely, that's a completely different thing. But the, the, the crude stuff, the nuts and bolts stuff, I think you you teach yourself in the uh, in 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 panic situations when you're called upon to do something you're not really qualified to do. Lawrence Edwards says, "Did you see that the Free Speech Union and the well? Thank you, by the way, for that question, Timothy. Uh, as I said, a lot of the pleasure of life has disappeared since 2019, and as you know, I'm in favour of forming the 2019 party." And all that that party's thing is just a pledge to go back to the world we lived in in 2019 before ruled by experts buggered everything that you can see. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. It's all crap now. Lawrence Edwards says, did you see the Free Speech Union and the Daily Skeptic website, both founded by Toby Young, were both deplatformed by PayPal this week? I didn't need to see it, Lawrence. Because the Mark Stein show broke the story. Mark Dolan was guest hosting for me and Toby broke the news. 
on the Mark Stein show on whatever it was, I think Wednesday this week. Um, I find this to be far more concerning than Twitter or YouTube banning people because PayPal has such a dominant position in online payment processing. Yeah, I wrote about this yesterday. And as I said, the Mark Stein show broke this story. Um, and it's something, but it's a point I made, and I've seen this so often. You know, when the whole Canadian human rights thing started uh, back in the 60s, and then it sort of started accelerating when Richard Warman came along in the 80s and 90s and aughts. And then it came, caught up with me. And as I always explain to people there, where they go wrong is when it starts, they go, oh, this uh, human rights thing. This is why you've got to start from first principles and why if, you, if you're not looking at it from first principles, you deserve to live in the hellhole you're headed for. Because the thing is, everyone likes, liked the human rights commissions in Canada because they didn't like the people they were going after. Oh, yeah, this, this uh, guy, he's a neo-Nazi. He puts, he puts flyers up in telephone boxes uh, advertising his neo-Nazi uh, neo activities. And you go, yeah, yeah, he's a, yeah, okay, he's a neo-Nazi, but are you quite sure the state should have the right to determine what kind of flyers uh, a chap can issue while living in his mum's basement? And, well, we don't need to get into all that, Stein, because these are just like, they're just doing a bit of mopping up on the far fringes of society. And what always happens is the fringes move inward. Now, what's happening to Toby is the same thing that's been happening to Peter Brimelo at VDA. Uh, VDA.com is an anti-immigration uh, website, and that's perfectly reasonable. They think the 19, whatever it was, the 1965 Immigration Act screwed America, and it did. Uh, and it will end America, actually. It's, um, you're going to have an America of 500 million, 600 million people that will be a fractious, tribal uh, swamp of fevers that uh, on a scale you've never known. Uh, so I happen to agree with them on that, but a lot of people don't like vdare.com. So when uh, merchant processors and internet service providers start cram... And, and you're right, Lawrence, it's much worse than Twitter or YouTube. It's much worse than opinion platforms saying that there are opinions they don't care for. When uh, merchant processors are saying they don't like your opinions, when internet service providers are saying they don't like your opinions, what you're doing then is having the, the uh, normal activities and normal support structures of life denied to you. Because the next thing from... So, so when you're told by PayPal, PayPal is... I, we don't use PayPal on Stein Online because they tried to screw over my assistant uh, 25 years ago, whenever it was when they got started, and I just didn't like the cut of their jib, and so I've had nothing to do with them. They've always been... Uh, you know, they've, they've, they've never been quite... Uh, uh, I, I've never quite liked the look of PayPal, but it wasn't woke then. It was just that they were bastards who'd crap all over you. Well, now uh, they are they are woke, and they have uh, and and essentially these everybody who runs the internet runs it as a cartel. It's one of the big changes, 
And so if you're told you can't use PayPal, in the case of Toby Young and the Free Speech Union Daily Skeptic, they get about a third of their income from PayPal. So they're seriously screwed. You know, I know about this. I had a bit of, uh, when we launched Stein Online almost 20 years ago, and, uh, you know, we have our online bookstore and everything. So we were looking for an online processor. And the first one we had, we knew within sort of 36 hours that it wasn't really working out. They weren't quite geared for it. So we had to change things and find another one. So we had a little period. Well, actually, we had an online bookstore that you couldn't pay by credit card. So you could, you had, what you had to do is, you know, send us a check in the mail. <laughs> And if you're constrained, and, 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 and I was like, I found it rather amusing because we had far more complaints about the system than we did from anybody sending, than, than we did people sending checks. And we'll be, what? hey, what are you on about? It's 2002 and I've got to write a check and find an envelope and then go down to the post office and put a stamp on the envelope and mail it to you so you can send me a book. Have you never heard of online commerce? And it was, uh, yeah, it was tricky. Now, now, 20 years later, uh, these people are actually denying the benefits of online commerce. And they started with Peter Brimelow. And Peter Brimelow, he has an anti-immigration website. And so people are like, yeah, well, you know, I, I sort of, yeah, I'm a bit queasy about all these people yanking uh, all their services from him. But he does go on about immigrants a bit. And yeah, it's all a bit, you know. Uh, Toby doesn't go on about immigrants. He's He's got a website. He's got one, The Daily Skeptic, which is skeptical uh, about the harms of lockdown, which are now quantifiable. They've killed people. It's a lot more suicide. Uh, there's a lot more teen suicide. And this is before we even get on to the vaccines or anything. So it's like all, all the Daily Skeptic does is say, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that uh, if these policies are implemented, they're going to have all kinds of disastrous consequences, including death. Oh, yeah, we can't offer. PayPal doesn't want to be associated with people who warn about the harms of lockdown. And then his other thing, the free speech union. You know, if you're a lady novelist uh, and you express a view about uh, wandering into the ladies room and finding uh, somebody who's hung like a stallion, just wandering around there, toweling off. Uh, while her lady parts are dangling uh, over the floor, and you're <laughs> now PayPal, and you're a bit uncertain about. Well, I'm not sure about that, you know. Uh, and Toby defends them in the Free Speech Union. He doesn't do anything on immigrants. He's not terribly interested in migrants on the southern shore. He's just interested in, like, helping lady novelists whose careers are being destroyed because they're not quite on board, because they're being told that you're transphobic if, uh, if you don't want to sleep with women who have penises. Oh, PayPal said, no, 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 we can't do business with it. Well, here's where it's going to go next, right? Here's where it's going to go next. Now, they're saying you can't have the things you need to operate your business, like your internet service provider and then your merchant processors. What's, what's it going to be next? The electric company uh, will cut off the electricity at your offices. The water board will cut off the water supply at your offices. Uh, the police will say, oh, no, 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 I'm afraid your driver's license. We can't have people with your opinions using the uh, municipal highways. 
this these people now are enforcers of we are moving into a world where dissent is not possible on a huge lengthening range of issues. Uh, Gregory is also interested in this topic. Gregory Benitez, he says, hello, Mark. I saw that the PayPal cancellation of Toby Young and the anti-lockdown parent organization were discussed in uh, uh, par- Parliament. Yeah, by parent organization, you mean parents who object to the harm lockdown is doing to their kids. But they seemed wishy-washy about it, framing it as a customer service issue rather than a free speech issue. Are they clueless or are they on board with the censorship? They're not clueless. And don't forget, we live in the the state is also using these private entities. The the so-called Biden administration's senior emissaries petitioned Twitter to cancel people they didn't like. So the whole conservative position here, again, this is why don't wave that constitution. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to yell, don't wave that constitution at me, even this late in the show. But this is where the, oh, well, this is, you know, conservatives are free to, this is where the abstractions of, uh, of conservatism miss the point. It is first principles where you have to, you have to always test yourself again. Would I do the same thing? Well, you know, which I do all the time. Uh, Julian Assange is a man of the left. I mean, he's not particularly congenial to me, but he's been screwed over. And so just because he's not on my side doesn't mean that I want to uh, let, uh, or, or, you know, I'm a Canadian subject of the crown and I don't see uh, why the US government should be demanding allegiance to its secrets from an Australian subject of the crown. So I just look at it like that, that if they can do it to Julian Assange, they'll do it to me. But, the, but, the, but first principles are better than uh, these so-called idea, an ideological philosophy that has become unmoored from reality. Right now, The internet is where you do business. It's particularly where you do the business of ideas. And so for uh, conservatives to say, well, they're a private entity, so they have the right not to want to do business with Toby Young or whatever. This isn't actually how it is in America. In America, you know, you have the you, you supposedly don't have the right to decide uh, that you're going to seat your black customers in the back of the diner if you serve them at all. You don't have the right to decide if you've got a bed and breakfast, uh, whether you want a gay couple going at it like the clappers in uh, in, in the, the room uh, next to the one where the uh, evangelical minister is. You don't have the right to do any of that because they're public accommodations. Well, now we have public accommodations that are just uh, willy-nilly cancelling uh, people for their politics. There's no conservative, because conservatives are increasingly crap and invisible in the public square, there's no conservative PayPal, there's no conservative Facebook. Maybe there should be. Maybe that would have been, as Kathy Shadle used to say, that would have been a good thing to do 15 years ago, just when these clever clogs were talking about taking over the internet. But right now, you know, we don't get to live in abstractions. You only have one life. 
You only have one timeline to do it in. Where actually, again, to go back to something I've been saying for years, where in the phase I always talked about, I looked at these future dystopias, uh, you know, where everyone's walking around glassy-eyed, all talking the same, all thinking the same. And I'm, I always said, uh, what was interesting to me is I always was always interested in how you got there from here, how you got from say, the England before the First World War, as A.J.P. Taylor said, the only contact the average Englishman ever had with the state was with the village constable and the village postmistress. How you get from there, a century later, to where we all are living in a dystopia, glassy-eyed, all wandering around, saying the same thing. And if you don't say the same thing, oh, it's just like 1984. Oh, what happened? He was here walking around yesterday, Toby Young was. Now he's now he's gone. What what happened to him? Oh, he had his uh, he couldn't he had his uh, uh, merchant he had his money processing thing on the internet all taken away from him. Oh yeah, and then they shut off the electricity in his house, so now he just sits in the dark. This is the way it's going. This is the way it's going. And it's terrible. And the conversation is nowhere near. And this is where, again, just to go back to the, um, you know, Martha's Vineyard thing. Uh, Christopher was right. It's about converting tens of millions of people who are not your enemies. It's reasonable enough to say when you look at Klaus Schwab, uh, when you, or even when you look at certain high-ranking American politicians, that these people are are engaged in a project that is going to destroy your lives. The question is, how many ordinary people who give them their votes are on board with that? How many people understand that, in the words of Neil Oliver's missus, it's not about going green; it's about going without. How many of them? understand that uh, we're in for downward mobility, that your grandparents will live better than your grandchildren. Your grandparents live better than your grandchildren ever will. These are huge questions, huge questions. And, And we're now in an accelerating process where the planks of uh, post-World War II Western prosperity are being demolished. Uh, And people are being told that it's somehow something to do with saving the planet or it's something Vladimir Putin has done uh, because of Ukraine. It's something to do with we all have to do this because there's a new variant out there. And none of it is to do with any of that. All of it is to do uh, with a sick view of what is necessary, supposedly, uh, to save the planet. That's even if you take that as a serious thing. And convert and 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 again, this is this is why uh, um, a, 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 a the energy has to be focused on just uh, taking the normal people all around you and saying what is necessary to get them to change their minds. Again, it's a point George Orwell makes in 1984. He says if there's hope, it is with the proles. He thought the middle classes, the kind of people 
you know, who get to man the bureaucracies, the kind of people who aspire to homes in Martha's Vineyard are, are, are like too far gone. They're corrupted by the, the regime and their sense of themselves depends on the regime. Uh, and uh, as Orwell puts it in 1984, if there is hope, it is with the Proles. If there is hope, it is in uh, it, it is the point at which it is advancing the point at which tens of millions of people who who are looking at this all wrong start to understand that. I'm touched by the people I meet, both uh, with regard to two stories in which the Mark Stein show has made a difference, a huge difference, not. Not perhaps in the great uh, geopolitical scheme of things, but in the lives of those affected. When I, I, the so-called grooming gang stories, and the so-called vaccine victim stories. None of those people, and I've met an awful lot of them. Whether they're girls or the victims of gang rape, that's not a political thing. Uh, my friend Sammy Woodhouse, when we were walking around Rotherham, um, she. Uh, she, she gets con- she she got confused. She doesn't. Un- she's kind of at the time she was confused about the politics of the thing. She didn't get that Rotherham was a Labour town, and when she went up to see David Cameron, he was a Conservative Prime Minister. She because she wasn't interested in any of that. You know, she started with the fact that her life had been wrecked. Uh, and that that's what made her serious about uh, about con- coming up against these things and squaring off against them. And then and then the same thing again uh, with the vaccine victims. They're just people getting on with their lives. Vicky Spit just loves. She's like the Queen. She just loves her dogs and horses. Got a couple more tattoos than the Queen, but that's okay, I think. Uh, but that's that's okay. That's what she was interested. In. She liked rock music. She liked dogs. She liked horses, and because of what they did to the love of her life, uh, she became an activist. You don't want to. You don't really want to have to let it get to that stage. These are normal people. These aren't political people. These are people who want to live their lives. And the government got in the way of them being able to do that. The government changed her life for the worse. Uh, the government of Rotherham changed Sammy Woodhouse's life for the, for the worse. And and what it is, what it is, it's all those people. It's tens of millions, hundreds of millions, have to uh, have to be persuaded that the default setting of society is a crock. And it's a crock that's going to make uh, their lives worse. Uh, it's gloomy stuff, so let's jolly things up to close. Uh, we featured on our Song of the Week some of the late Queen's favourite music. So what of His Majesty the King's favourites? Last year, uh, the then Prince of Wales went on a hospital radio station and picked out a few tracks uh, for the patients favorite tracks of his, including this. It's a terrific song by Harry Warren and Al Dubin, written for the 1935 Warner Brothers film, starring Dick Powell and Joan Blondell. It's called Broadway Gondolier, which is one of the greatest film titles of all time. Broadway Gondolier. What's it about? Oh, come on. 
What do you think it's about? Dick Powell is a Manhattan cab driver who, for various reasons, has to pose as a Venetian gondolier. So he spends most of the picture in a faintly ridiculous mustache uh, with clothes to match. But this is a fantastic song. And wait till the Mills Brothers show up to warble with Dick halfway through. As uh, Mr. Powell recommends, get yourself a boutonniere Lulu's back in town. Where's that careless chambermaid? Where'd she put my razor blade? She mislaid it, I'm afraid. It's got to be found. Ask her when she cleaned my room. What she did with my perfume. I just can't lose it. I gotta use it. Lulu's back in town. Gotta get the old tuxedo pressed. Gotta sew a button on my vest. Cause tonight, I gotta look my best. Lulu's back in town. Gotta get half a buck somewhere. Gotta shine shoes and slick my hair. Gotta get myself a boutonniere. Lulu's back in town. You can tell all my pets, all my blondes and brunettes, Mr. Otis regrets that he won't be around. You can tell the mailman not to call. I ain't coming home until the fall, and I might not get back home at all. Lulu's back in town. Where's that careless chambermaid? When she put my razor blade, she mislaid it, I'm afraid. Say, boy, it's got to be found. Ask her when she cleaned my room, what she did with my perfume. I just can't lose it, I've got to use it. Lulu's back in town. Is she back again? Yeah. You got to get your old tuxedo press. All right, tonight. You got to sew a button on your vest. Cause tonight, you gotta look your best. Why? Lulu's back in town. You gotta get yourself a half a buck somewhere. All right, tonight. You gotta shine your shoes and slick your hair. You gotta get yourself a fresh air. Lulu's back in town. I'm gonna tell all his pets. He's got a million. All his Harlem coquettes. Oh, so many. Mr. Otis regrets. I'm afraid that he won't be around. I'll tell the mailman not to call. He won't be back home until the late fall. And he might not get back home at all. You're telling me. Lulu's back in town. Why don't I 
A favourite performance of his newly enthroned majesty. A corker of a tune by Harry Warren. Lyrics to match by Al Dubin. Introduced by Dick Powell with the Mills Brothers in the film Broadway Gondolier. 1935, Lulu's Back in Town. Memo to the Duke of Sussex. Next time you're in London, sing Megan's Back in Town to your pop. He will love it. That's only the second instance of white men and black men singing together in an American motion picture. Uh, The King likes a lot of performers from the 1920s and 30s because, as he once told a friend of mine, quote, my grandmother knew all these characters, which is true, as we've touched on occasionally. We will have all our regular features this weekend. The 100 Years Ago Show, Rick McGuinness's movie pick, Stein's Song of the Week. Stay safe, stay free. Get yourself a boutonniere. Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.